Today on the show, we bring you a conversation with Dr. Dan Greenstein, Director of Education Post-Secondary Success in the United States Program for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Dan is going to talk about how to engage in a conversation with your colleagues around, one, how do we address the significant gaps in our workforce development needs as we head toward 2025? Second, what is the role in seeking business efficiencies in building a sustainable institutional future? And most importantly, are we doing enough to be genuinely disruptive? The conversation runs about 42 minutes, so go grab a cup of coffee and enjoy the show. And welcome to Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybel Education. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here as always with Howard Tybel. You said something to me a few days ago, Howard, about provoking the avalanche, and that has really stuck with me. I hope we will provoke a little avalanche today. We have a guest that is uniquely equipped to help us dive into some of these questions. Dr. Daniel Greenstein serves as Director of Education Post Secondary Success in the United States Program for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In that capacity, he oversees work to substantially increase the number of students who acquire a post-secondary degree or certificate. He comes to that role from the University of California Office of the President as Vice Provost for Academic Planning and Programs, overseeing academic planning required for the 10-campus, 220,000-student UC system. Dan Greenstein, welcome to Navigating Change. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Dan, is provoking the avalanche too provoking? What do you think about that metaphor? (laughs) 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 Look, I think the snow is piling up pretty high on top of some of these cornices. So um... There's something about getting ahead of this, thinking about what we do as we look forward as navigators of change as opposed to solvers of change. And if you think about yourself as a navigator, the mindset is you need to know that those things are coming and you need to have the resiliency to deal with them. So I'm curious if in the nature of your engaging with others, whether you see that metaphor showing up and if you find it useful. I do. I mean, I think I, I, I do. I think it's a, a great framing. I, look, change is constant and, and the pace of change is probably accelerating. And so I think it's appropriate to constantly be looking forward and course correcting fast fail, rapid prototyping, the kind of uh, trends you see in many different sectors uh, of our economy, including service sectors. Um, The only caveat, I guess, the only add I would make is that, you know, the institutions which are moving very progressively in innovative ways to uh, uh, better serve their students, to graduate more students and to do better with what we call the new majority students, students uh, who are are part-time students of color, low-income students uh, increasingly uh, students who are um, over the age of 24, uh, improving their graduation rates. The institutions which are doing the best, they do have a long-term vision of themselves and the, the, their value and the, the communities and the students that they serve. And they hold those fast, you know, as a North Star, a Southern Cross, depending on which metaphor you prefer. And they hold those fast and they orient towards them. But as they're moving towards that long-range vision, they're constantly trying and shifting and changing um, using data often in order to uh, to make course corrections. And I think of folks like uh, who've been in the business a long time. John Hitt, who's the president of the University of Central Florida, a great innovative institution. Michael Crow's been at Arizona for 12 years. Stephen Johnson at Sinclair Community College, probably 14 years. 
able to sort of orient towards that long-term vision, but constantly change and evolve in order to get there with uh, greater effectiveness. Right. So what I hear you saying is the caveat is that in the absence of having a steadfast, long-term view of where we're going to go and, and repeating that mantra, whatever it is, in the absence of that, navigating can end you, you can end up someplace, but not where you would necessarily want, where, where you want to end up. I think that's right. And I think it's also a check against faddishness, right? You know, there's a real, yes. um, you know, going after a, a, a group of students who are just not really feasible given the nature of the institution. It's really important to know the students and the communities that you serve, to know what the core competencies of the institution really are, to understand in a very practical, realistic, and often self-critical way, uh, both strengths and limitations, and then to sort of factor that into your thinking about how to evolve. You shared four points with Pete and I in advance of this, and I want to read something that you wrote, just the intro, and I'd love you to expound on this. How do we get people to recognize it's more than just being well-meaning? You said, you know, I don't believe that the philanthropic incentive is powerful enough or potentially powerful enough to engage effectively with the challenges in higher ed. Doing the right thing is an important motivation but may not be strong enough to overcome the obstacles to change. Say more about that. So let me, yeah, let me, let me um, maybe begin by just framing the scale of the change that we're trying to accomplish. So if you look at the challenge in higher education, if you look at it from a crash. Excuse state, me, when you say we, I just want to make sure that, because people know that you're with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yeah. When Is the we like the mindset that you put on your work? Uh, I, I just think it's good to for people to understand sort of the, the we in this case. What's yeah, the we? Yeah, I think that's, no, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, it's the, and, and it, I spent a long part of my life in uh, Britain where we used to talk about the royal we. Um, <laughs> uh, so I think in this, in this case, it would be we the, the foundation works closely with any number of different partners. Right. And I would sort of put, if I were to put my arms around those partners, and that includes folks who are both supportive of various forms of investments, but also partners, thought partners, and um, folks who are really thinking hard about what it means to um, reinvigorate higher education in service to the country. Um, Got it. Uh, yeah. So if there's a uh, uh, if you can imagine a kind of budding higher ed reform movement, I would sort of, that's the we. Got it. Um, and so if, if, if when, and when I speak about we, I'm really thinking about the, the, the folks in whose company we have the um, honor of traveling. Yeah, and, and that's traveling. wonderful. And that's why your, your lens in your view, because you, you have a broad lens of people who are deeply trying to see how they can navigate this. So, so sorry for the interruption. No, good, good call. Um, so, so let's get back to what this, this obstacles to change and this question about motivation. So let's talk about the scale of the change first, and then let's talk about the motivation. So if you're, if you're looking at it from a pure, purely economic lens, right, and you're saying, you know, the role, one role of higher education, and there are many roles, but one role, of course, is to sort of ensure that the, that the workforce has the kind of people in it that we need to sort of um, continue to develop our economy. So uh, the economist at Georgetown, uh, Tony Carnevale and his colleagues, you know, Estimate that by 2025, the nation's workforce will require 11 million more people uh, to have some form of post-secondary education than the country's colleges and universities are currently on track to produce. If you break that down, it's about a 4 or 5% compound annual growth rate, which means in real people's terms that every single college, to achieve that goal, to feed the nation's workforce development needs and our continued economic progress. Colleges and universities would have every year to increase their graduation rates, degrees and certificates, 
by 5% a year. 5% a year, year on year. We're currently traveling at about 1%, right? And that's mostly driven by enrollment growth, which is flattening. So somehow we're going to have to increase our graduation rates by, by, by five, five, five times our current rate every single year. So that's the first. Now, now you could also look at this, and we do, when I say we, again, the, the larger sort of interest in, 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 in creating, re-energizing higher education. You could also look at this through an equity lens and say, what would it take to actually diminish the appalling gaps in opportunity gaps? attainment gaps between rich and poor, black and white. So right now, if you're a wealthy person, you're five times more likely to have a graduate, a BA um, uh, by age of 24 than if you're poor, five times more likely. Uh, and I think the uh, three times more likely uh, if you're white than if you're Hispanic, and you can go on in those, in those ways. So you're looking at these massive changes that are gonna have to be affected. In, the, in, 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 in how colleges perform uh, with the students that they serve with, with uh, in particular, low-income students, students of yeah. so So that's the nature of the change. We're talking about something happening at enormous scale. Now, in the public sector, in the public universities and colleges, you know, people are motivated. They tend to teach and work there because they're motivated by the social mission of those places. And yet, you got to ask yourself, is that, is that motivation sufficient? to drive the nature of reorganization and change and, and innovation. Across our institutions, not just within. That's exactly right. At, right? You know, yeah, exactly. What are you observing, since you have been sharing this mantra now, what do you observe is coming back at you as a result of what you're sharing? So a couple of things. Um, one of them is the scale of the problem is vast. Uh, the nature of the changes that are required are huge. Um, but there's also a lot of points of light on the horizon. So you can point to any number, a growing number of colleges and universities who are really moving the needle in stunning ways. And, you, and, and, and surrounding those institutions, you ask them, gosh, what are you doing that's enabling you to succeed? How is it that Georgia State University, for example, was able to double its graduation rates while it was increasing the number of Pell and low income students uh, and at the same time, oh, by the way, and this is over only in a you know, period of five or seven years, uh, oh, and by the way, eliminate attainment gaps between rich and poor, black and white. What, what, what did they do to achieve those goals? How was it that a University of Central Florida was able ha to have a similar effect, not just to improve its graduation rates while it was diversifying its student body? Um, how are they able to do that while they're actually containing cost um, and reducing expenditure per student? So... If you look at a number of, there are a number of institutions which demonstrate through their existence, through the, through the successes that they've had, that these problems can be, uh, can be addressed. What we're also seeing is that they're being addressed through, you know, it's not an infinite variety of solutions that people are trying. So what, what, one of the other points of light, at least in my view, is you're beginning to see coalescence uh, within the community around a fairly concise, finite handful of things that appear, interventions, approaches, organizational approaches, uh, uses of technology, of a handful of interventions, call them, that actually seem to work uh, to improve the ability of a college uh, to help to not only enroll a greater number of more diverse students, but actually help them uh, through to graduate through to graduation. Um, so I think that coalescence is really beginning to take shape uh, in a handful of ways, and you're beginning to see opportunities. Um, in groups of institutions coming together to learn from one another, to network with each other, 
to enable those um, in a way that enables those innovations to actually spread and scale, which is pretty exciting. We need to balance, uh, when I say optimism, I don't mean cheerleading, a, a sense of what's possible by giving examples of where there are places, if you put the right focus, or say, here's where we're having success, we need to learn from it, but then also with the brutal facts. And it seems that's the game that we have to play well. We have to tell the brutal facts so it doesn't immobilize people into inaction. At the same time, we have to have a vision where they can see it's possible. And then the question is, how do you get people who are working within their institutions to think more broadly? Well, I, I have to say one of the things that we have seen, again, if you look at the innovators, is that there are any number of different motivations at work. One of them is that they tend to recognize that student success is actually key to their institution's financial sustainability and survival. Um, that's powerfully apparent in the independent sector. Uh, less so, I think, in, uh, has been less apparent in the public sector, the public yep. nonprofit yep. sector, but it's becoming increasingly so in the public nonprofit sector. Uh, sector, you know, at where again, if you look at the innovative uh, institutions, the leadership is well aware that you know a one percent bump in year-on-year retention returns a certain number of dollars, and they're beginning to evaluate uh, the various aspects of their let's call it a student success agenda, the various initiatives that they're putting in place in order to improve their student success. They're beginning to evaluate the cost of those initiatives against the return, which is measured in terms of dollars retained. Um, so I'll give you a, a, I'll give you a concrete example. So one of the things you're seeing uh, we're seeing a real um, coalescence around is the use of uh, technologies that um, allow you to support student advising using predictive analytics. It allows you to identify patterns in the data which suggest, for example, that a student in a major area of study uh, who is getting a C in their first year in a course that they need for the major they're proposing, you know, is much less likely to graduate than a student who's getting a B or above, right? And so you can begin to have advising interventions with that student much earlier on. You don't have to wait until the, uh, you know, there are 100 credits in, they're dropping out. You don't have to wait until that happens to have a conversation about, you know, let's look at this and we've got patterns here that we can show you and let's have a conversation about what we can do about this. And we're seeing pretty significant, consistent retention uh, improvements for folks who are using those technologies well. The using those technologies well typically means adding more advisors, adding to your costs on the advising side, sometimes significantly. The only way you can justify that, of course, is not just, I mean, so if it was a, that going back to the what's the incentive structure, what's the, what are some of the powerful incentives? Well, one incentive, it's definitely the right thing to do. We have to add more advisors. We have to bring the student um, uh, advisor ratio down from its 650 or 800 students per advisor. We have to get it closer to 350, 400 or whatever. You know, that's a powerful incentive. It's the right thing to do for our students. That's a powerful incentive. The fact that it might cost three or four million dollars, depending on the size of the institution over a period of time, is also a powerful disincentive, right? Right. So how do you balance that? And the way I'm seeing it balanced is where folks are looking at the numbers basically and saying, look, we're going to spend this money on adding, you know, doubling our advising core, doing whatever, adding to our advising core. Um, but if we're able through doing that to improve our retention rates by a certain amount, we're going to not just return on the investment, we're actually going to do better on the, on the whole. Um, so folks who are making those calculations, really thinking carefully about their student success agenda, marrying that philanthropic, it's the right thing to do with it's the financially sane thing to do, 
um, is 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 a very powerful uh, set of incentives. I think that was a, such a perfect example, and and it ties nicely to the second point you were making because, in one breath, you know, I'm out there and I was having a meeting today, and 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 the whole conversation was with this particular institution. They were exploring how do we pursue bold ideas, and was really attempting to get their leaders to step outside of this is the way we've always done it into a conversation about what would it mean for us to really focus on the outcomes we're offering and and or that we envision and then design our structures to support that you wrote uh, while seeking efficiencies is not sustaining a sustaining way to correct the basic business failure it does buy us time and will require more use of technology and what i really like about that is that recognizing in one breath you could say that incremental efficiencies is not going to get us there but but I, that's the first time i read or thought about this idea of we need ways to think about buying time and get people caught up with how in in being part of not just the solution but understanding the problem yeah i think there's two things so one of them is you know you're buying time the other is you're actually freeing up uh, investment dollars right Right. So that if you're able to sort of achieve efficiencies in one area, I mean, again, it depends on the institution. You know, in some public institutions, the fear, and it's 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 grounded in 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 more than a kernel of evidence, is that any efficiency saving is swept up by the public funder in terms of a kind of uh, a further funding reduction, um, and that's a real. I mean, that is a real and and present threat. At the same time, you know, it, it, one is one is always thinking about can you. Uh, create an efficiency somewhere so you can reallocate dollars in ways that improve student success. I mean, that's the ideal. The, the challenge of that, and I'm speaking from the perspective of a small private where I, I'm on the faculty, it is that you know when this, the institution tends to be struggling, it's generally because they're so focused at playing on the margins. Yeah, then, right. then there is never enough time. I yeah. should say. So yeah. you know, your examples are so spot on. Our schools like Georgia State and Florida making such gains in graduation rates by playing on efficiencies. You know, where does if you you know, efficiency end and and boldness begin. Yeah, and the boldness, and I've seen this in the independents, and, and our work tends to be with the larger publics because that's where the numbers are, quite frankly, but we do some stuff with the independents as well. Um, uh, you know, you, I've, se- I, I, I've seen it in um, in any number of places. Often the um, innovation does tend to be on the, on the margin with small discretionary dollars. It's the um, and that tends to be the let's the pilot right. Let's try this. Let's yeah. see. Well, what it let's looks experiment. Like. Let's experiment, which is really powerful. Uh, the question is, I mean, let's come back to that. The question is, how can you actually shrink, reduce the amount of experimentation time because it takes time and money. The the real challenge is the the boldness comes when you commit to scaled implementation of X, whatever X is, whatever innovation. Um, because you can't easily dial back on that. I've seen that up close and personal uh, in a small independent, you know, where uh, in many small independents where they do the typical thing, we're going to add, you know, in order to increase our enrollments and, and boost our revenue, we're going to build, we're going to add a lacrosse team and, and a professional school or something, a professional program, um, you know, and then you've got to basically sit back and hope to God the enrollments come in the way that you forecast them. And, right. you know, that's a three, four, five year journey. And when do you pull the plug? Now, the margins aren't as small and a much larger, I mean, scale matters in this industry, which gets back to your issue of, you know, competition, I mean, competition between um, scale matters in, in a variety of ways. We tend to see that larger institutions do better in their cost structure and they can do significantly better in terms of delivery on student outcomes. Now, again, we're talking about uh, not talking about uh, well-endowed elite privates, whether of the liberal arts or, or research uh, variety. We're tending to, to, I'm speaking here about the, to the regional comprehensives, the two years, and the public uh, research, non-flagship research universities. Scale matters. 
And, um, and, and, and so that, that search for efficiency is often going to be uh, tied up in search for scale efficiencies. And then you get to the notion of shared services and cloud services and, you know, the kind of mergers that are going on in the Georgia state system. I mean, we're beginning to see, you know, in, 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 in the University of uh, Texas where they got the merger in the um, Rio Grande Valley, you're beginning to see a bunch of uh, 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 incremental approaches to achieving those kinds of scale efficiencies, not in the interest of dollars, in the interest of student success, which I think is very powerful. There's a recognition that part of the problem about being a disruptor is that when you're in it, you don't see the incentive to change is is low. You know, you also wrote, are we doing enough to support the genuine disruptive way to move this industry forward. I'm concerned on some level, Dan, that it reminds me a bit of IBM when the mainframe mainframe business was still strong. There is no incentive until that thing fell off the face of the earth did it become of 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 not just interest, but of critical nature to move into microcomputers and laptops. Yeah. And, and I'm concerned that the industry, as much as we're going to do, that in the absence of external disruption or maybe positive external disruption, it's going to be very hard to make some of the changes that you are struggling with every day. Yeah. So I, there's a couple things, I guess, going on. You know, one of them is that's why I love this long term vision. Like, what's the where are we going in the next 10, 15 and 20 years? Because it allows you to think sort of incrementally through the kinds of changes that you, one needs to navigate through. Um, the, 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 the second, I think, is that um, there's real constraint on innovation in the fact that, I mean, as you've as, as you've it's very hard for any any participant in any industry to look at the next bend in the S-curve, right? What's happening? Because as long as we're making money now, yeah, things are bad, but it could get better. You know, there's always that. Um, so there's a first mover problem, right? What is it that's going to, you know, what is it that's going to get you beyond the strategy of hope, hope that things are going to get better somehow, uh, to actually undertake the difficult and very fundamental kinds of uh, reforms? To be personally invested. Right. To be per And a comprehensively across institution, one person can never pull these things off. You yes. know, especially in, in higher education, where you know top down's tough call. I mean, you can do it in some places, but not many. Um, that they need to be in order for, uh, for 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 the kinds of transformations to be lasting and systemic in a, in a college or university, they have to be very inclusively led, which is hard to do. Um, and it's hard to do in an industry where leadership typically changes every five or six years. There's right turnover. Is 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 the is is um, are we going to face an existential crisis in my tenure as a as a president? Probably not. Um, are we going to face an existential crisis in the next ten to fifteen? Maybe. Right. So, um, so that's actually a, another in, uh, impediment, I think, with respect of disruption as well. And it's not been very effective in higher ed. You know, the regulatory environment, uh, not just the federal, but also the one sort of created by our accreditation systems, um, make it very difficult to start something funded, to make it very difficult for institutions to go away and to make it very difficult for new institutions to emerge that are genuinely outside the mold. So I think that, uh, you know, while yeah, I struggle with when I say we, are we supporting enough disruption, I think, or, or potential. When I say disruption, maybe I'm meaning potentially transformative innovation. How's that? When I say are we supporting enough potentially transformative innovation, I think I'm, I am thinking of we 
investors in higher education and that includes public investors like states and federal governments as well as philanthropy and um, and, 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 and uh, uh, other commercial uh, um, pro pro private providers. Are we investing in enough things that could potentially be transformative? Um, are we so focused on the innovative, I mean, sorry, the incremental approach to innovation that we're not looking hard enough at the next uh, smartphone or the equivalent in, in, in higher education? I think that's a constant, that uh, is a constant concern. Where are you looking as, as you look out in the next six months to a year, where are you hoping to put your energy? Yeah. So, uh, first of all, I look, I look backwards and I, and I look back to 2006. You're a historian. I am. I have to, right? I can't help myself. <laughs> it's like just beaten into me. Um, uh, you know, I look, if you go back to spellings, I think was 2006. So you go back about a decade. There's been a tremendous amount of change in higher education, which is perceived as an industry which doesn't change. And I think that perception is not very helpful. Right, um, right. I mean, if you think about it, everybody now is talking about completion and student success. The completion wasn't known as, a, as an issue. It was just becoming known as an issue uh, 10 years ago. It's now on everybody's lips. And, right? and, and people now know, what I'm, you know, you say student success, that is a overarching term for a number of different things. And people are beginning to recognize what that means from an institutional standpoint. Yeah, yeah. You could not have a conversation about the value of college with too many people in 2006. Now we are intensely focused as a community, That's a not great just point. higher ed providers, students and parents. I mean, my kid's in high school. So we go to the high school you know, sports dinner potlucks. And, you know, they find out that I'm an educator. And so I get all the questions about, you know, the choices families are making when they're applying to college. Should I send my kid to the local public and be able to maybe help them with a graduate school? Or should I send them to the sort of non-local public or even private and graduate schools off the table? How do we navigate financial aid? How do we navigate scholarship? Does it matter if they go to X or Y? You know, parents are making and their and their children are making really difficult trade-off decisions. And of course, 40% of our students, I think, are actually independent. They're, they're, they're themselves going to college. They're over the age of 24. They're independent from their parents uh, financially. Um, and of course, their, their means are even more constrained and their trade-offs are more in some ways uh, uh, stark. Um, and so there is, a, a, there is visceral experience of this sort of conversation around what's the value. I think people recognize in all the polling that we do that college is still a sustaining, uh, is probably one of the best pathways into a sustaining career uh, and, and good life. Uh, and at the same time, there's increasing skepticism uh, that colleges and universities are returning on that, uh, are returning on that promise to the students that they're enrolling. Um, and, and those are disturbing trends. Um, uh, but it actually represents another part of the incentive structure that's at work because those are the students that colleges are now going to have to enroll. They're becoming more, more skeptical and they need to be more skeptical because the cost of college uh, relative to the, uh, is, is the cost to them of, uh, is, is, is increasing. Um, so I think, you know, and I mean, we've already talked about it. You can see, you know, other points of like coalescence around things that actually work. We've talked about advising using uh, predictive analytics. We're beginning to see really good numbers with some kinds of online education, particularly hybrid education. Uh, you know, where there's still a lot of face-to-face -face contact, but where the technology is being used to support the faculty in doing the best that they can and support the students in doing the best that they can. We're seeing good numbers.
numbers there. Uh, we're seeing, you know, excellent examples of, uh, you know, different approach to financial aid packaging. We're seeing good approach, uh, better understanding of how to improve transfer from community colleges to four years so that students don't lose so many credits and stay on track to a degree. So you're seeing coalescence around a variety of really important innovations, and you're beginning to see those innovations spread. So to your question, what are we doing? We're beginning to invest more and more of our dollars as we're beginning to see that it's less about, oh my goodness, what do we do? We're actually getting our arms as a community around what to do to, um, to begin. Now we're beginning to think, okay, how do you actually spread support uh, engagement with that knowledge? And it's, how do you support the spread of implementations? How do you support the next college so that it can learn quickly experiment quickly, drawing on knowledge for the community already has, understanding how it fits and works within the local context, and moving quickly to implementation so you can help real students much more quickly. So that's, we're beginning to think more in our sort of internal language. We're beginning to think more about scale and spread. We'll always be invested in innovation, but right now we see a real opportunity, partly because of the urgency of the problem, partly because of the growing skepticism around college, partly because of the recognition amongst college leaders that they not only have to tackle that skepticism, but they have to do it in a way which will lead to the sustainability of their institutions. Those are all powerful levers. And so the question is, how can we use this moment in time? This window is open, probably not forever. How can we use the fact that this window is open to sort of promulgate the knowledge that the community has developed? in a way that helps more students more quickly. I think that is absolutely huge. And I, you know, I, we're using the word skepticism here, but just in terms of the classroom experience, I'm finding that it, it's not, it, that skepticism is particularly healthy. It shows an awareness uh, of these complex issues that I think when the students come to the university with an understanding of the complex, you know, financial constraints and the system constraints and the support constraints, uh, that is a form of influence that we haven't seen uh, really before. And I know at least our university is trying very hard to wrap their hands around and their heads around an educated uh, customer base in a way that they've never had. Uh, and and that, I, I think it, it could be skeptical in sort of a negative context, but it can also be a very powerful motivator. I think that's right. I think consumer information, look, I mean, this is America. <laughs> this is the United States of America where, you know, consumer movements and consumer information movements have been very powerful in a variety of industries. And we can go back to the food industry if we wanted to in Upton Sinclair. The, the challenge here, I think, is that the, the, the students who's face some of the biggest obstacles, have the least voice. Yeah. And for a variety of <laughs> reasons, right. are least likely to use that voice. Uh, so the, the group that has the least voice is growing. So this this becomes all of these sort of accommodations and all of these in, bits of innovation that we're seeing are are they truly impacting uh, rising access to those who need it the most? Uh, you know, the group without a voice. Yeah, I mean, I think, and that's I think that's one of our biggest you know our biggest challenges. Look, I mean, if you take if you look at this from a sort of macro through a macro lens, uh, we cannot actually achieve our workforce development needs without doing a heck of a lot better with students who are historically underserved by colleges and universities. It's it just, it's, 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 it's highly improbable. I mean, you know, bluntly, there's not enough wealthy uh, white people left to educate to meet our workforce development needs. The numbers don't work. But I, but I'll tell you, I think, I think most people are, are 
wholly unaware of what you're saying here. My sense when I travel the country is that people have their head down. They don't have their head out. So I think that's I think that's right. But we're, I'm I'm gonna you know again an eternal optimist. So 29 states. You're the impatient optimist. I'm, the impatient, I'm an impatient optimist. Thank you. <laughs> 29 states have education goals. 20 of those don't. I, I I may need to go back and correct the number. But I, last time I checked, I was 29 states have education goals, like numeric goals. 20 of those track with the 11 million, which is about the, which is also the Lumina goal. Like, like 60, 65% of the uh, 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 adults need to have some form of higher education by 2025. So 20 of the 29 states that have educate have goals, education attainment goals, have goals which track with that. Right. So you're beginning to see at least that's that North Star that's important for policy as well as institution. Right. So you're seeing that North Star now land in public policy in a variety of states, which is a big deal. You're beginning to see states, Oregon, Texas, uh, Tennessee, great example, beginning to formulate their education, public policies and strategic planning, statewide strategic planning around that goal. Right. So you're beginning to see a level of recognition and policy circles, which I think is really high. You see that on the ground as well. If you look within, um, you know, spent some time recently with Steve Johnson and his folks at Sinclair Community College in Dayton, I mean, or, or Johnson C. Smith in Charlotte, you know, they're very acutely aware. They, they are regional institutions. They're local institutions. They serve a particular community, right? They are acutely aware that their fate and the community's fate are intimately tied together. And, um, and, and, and are working well within their communities, within their context, uh, in order to, to meet the goals which are you know, now conceived of on a kind of a more, more of a local, local level. So I'm seeing you know, more orientation towards that kind of thinking. Uh, you know, when I'm in the trenches with some institutions and individual ones, I am working as hard as I can to get them to talk about the elephants in the room that they're not willing to talk about, or it's hard to talk about. And that kind of human behavior of not being candid, not being willing to sort of recognize, here's the things we need to face, that to me is an impediment for us being successful in the long term. I think that's right. And and look, I, you know, the, the other bit of good news, again, my impatient optimism, is that, you know, higher education tends to attract educated people to work in the, in, in the industry. I, I, so it's not the kind of place that responds well again to the leader coming in and saying we're going this we're going to do this folks but it is a kind of place where people are sensitive to information and its interpretation so you can imagine and i've seen it and participated in great conversations with passionate faculty and advisors and staff administrators you know where you're just look here's the problem let's look out 15 years Let's run, you know, let's, let's do some form of scenario. We, higher education does this all the time. It was called um, enrollment planning, right? We've been doing enrollment planning forever. Uh, uh, so we're not unused to doing kind of long-range thinking. We do long-range capital development plans forever, right? So, um, so we're not unused to long-range long thinking. Uh, now, unfortunately, the, the, the data that we're looking at are profoundly disturbing. Uh, and, you know, there are opportunities to host on campus uh, really good and powerful discussions about the nature, the, the extent of the challenge that the institution is facing given the student body and the communities that it serves, and to host really good and vigorous debate 
in the context of well-evidenced information about what can and cannot be tried and what does and does not work well or you know better in certain circumstances, um, about what that institution can and ought to do. You know, we are now in a position to do you know a kind of strategic planning that is more inclusive. You know, it, and it will only work to your point. I think if folks are able to actively listen, to hear through. Uh, with with to, to approach issues with an open mind, to recognize, depending on what their age is, that the 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 profession that they signed up for has not changed, but the context in when it, in which it is being practiced has transformed itself. And so, what does that mean? And those are really hard conversations, but I think they can be actively pursued. And the best leaders, faculty, and uh, administrators. At administrative are able to facilitate that to, to to conduct that kind of change leadership very very effectively. It's hard you to know, do. It's and important. this is all in the context of something else that you shared with us is this idea that you know since the election, uh, and I'm not pointing to the election itself, and I'm not you know advocating or or talking negative about any any politician in this case, but the but the nature of the public discourse. Uh, you talk about microclimates is is an area that we need to be paying attention to. How is this coming together and being with like-minded people and feeling safer in a place where you have people that share your point of view, how might that be affecting, as we look forward, the nature of how our institutions uh, create diversity and how we build on that? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, uh, yeah, I think it's a. Uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, one of the things you raised it. I was really. I was. I was really <laughs> struck by the insight as you look forward a couple of years and saying, are we going to see some impact in how our institutions are effectively uh, creating a you know, the diverse population they're looking for in the context of more and more. Uh, closing down and being able to have public discourse. Yeah, I mean, one of the most disturbing trends in uh, that I see, at least in in, in American society, is this um, is this uh, uh, um, groups of people living amongst, you know, living with, socializing with, thinking with um, folks who are a lot like themselves. It's uh, it's increasing segregation. I don't use that in a kind of necessarily in a race way, but it has racial yep, yep, yep. implications. But that segregation isn't now just about G- where people live. It's about who they work with. It's about the kinds of news media they engage with, the social media they engage with. It's the political, you know, uh, discourse that they're familiar with. You're seeing increasing separation uh, in our society, and, I, and 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 discontent as a result. And we saw that obviously in the in the election cycle. And it's still uh, and and there's no. Uh, it seems to me to be no evidence except for that that is actually growing. Um, Higher education, not all colleges and universities. It depends on where you're located. I mean, if you're a you know a regional comprehensive in the middle of South or North Dakota, um, uh, you know it, you're not. It's not by definition. It's not going to be a very diverse uh, institution. It may be diverse by uh, income, but certainly not by race. But in other corners, uh, higher education, uh, colleges and universities have really played a vital role as being part of our public square. I mean, they have been one of those institutions which has contributed to the function of the melting pot. And um, so the question is, does it continue in that role? And, you know, if you look at some of the some of the some of the challenges that campuses are, 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 are facing with respect of the um, uh, 
uh, tensions between uh, different groups of students. Is that going to be? Uh, is that going to translate itself into um, you know trends in enrollment that see students enrolling in institutions uh, that they choose because they're they're likely to be amongst the majority. People like them. They're they're likely to be with large. The, the majority of people are going to be more rather than less like them. And what does that mean? Not just for the nature of the college experience, but the nature of the education, and frankly, um, you know, the ability to to contribute something in 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 the way of breaking down some of the barriers that are growing up to separate uh, uh, people. That's such an important question to be paying attention to. And, you know, know, it's like also this movement of safe spaces and maybe redefining. My hope is, and to the extent that we can have influence on this, that the concept of safe spaces really morphs more back into a safe space to be able to listen and engage with each other in different points of view. That's what higher education was. Truly. And it it reminds us where, uh, you know, for me as a faculty member, it reminds me that we're not done. If they just graduate and they leave with all the content that was in my head, we're still not done. Where does this discussion uh, 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 impact me in the classroom? Because I think it does. And uh, I believe it does. Which leads to a conversation that, you know, maybe we can have another time, Dan, which is this idea of how education is to move from being more than just knowledge acquisition, but the focus are on learning to learn. Right. You know, as, as students graduate, are we preparing them for what they're going to encounter as learners in the world? Right. I, I think that's a whole other domain. Where would you like people to go and learn more about either your work or the work of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Oh, that's a great question, um, and thank you for that. And thank you for asking. Um, so we have a, a, a website uh, which is postsecondary.gatesfoundation.org, uh, and uh, from the website you can also uh, find our newsletter, uh, which I think we get out I don't know ten or so times a year, um, and just subscribe. It's free and get sent. Uh, it'll come along when, when it's prepared. Um, so that'll take care of uh, the found, that'll take care of the foundation. From the, from the site, there are um, all sorts of links to um, you know partners and to the great works that our partners are doing. And I think that's the real jewel or gem. It's not the work of the foundation so much as the work of the great people that were able to travel uh, in their company, um, which is super important. I would add one thing just to that last point that you made, if I can, and that is just to remind us all that um, you know higher education is not a single monolithic thing. It has many different purposes for many different kinds of students. And so as we begin to sort of debate and discuss the, 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 the trajectory of, of higher education, I think we, it, it will do well to, to remember the diversity of approaches and the diversity of need. Um, and that the thing that works well for, you know, a student um, in uh, pursuing a liberal arts education at a smallish college uh, may not be the thing that works so well for an adult uh, who is returning to education after some hiatus with a view to improving their standing in the, in the, in the job market, which is different yet again than, you know, a student, potentially different yet again from a student coming uh, as a first, gener- first person in their family to go to college, um, you know, directly from high school, uh, potentially lacking some of the, um, you know, uh, social and even academic capital that they might trigger their automatic success, that the experiences of these students and the needs of these students are very different. And so we need always to ask ourselves, you know, when we're talking about education, what kind of education are we talking about for whom? And then how do we tailor the knowledge about what works and what doesn't 
to those very different um, uh, approaches and needs. Um, and so I just wanted to close with that to remind us that we're dealing with a complex uh, entity, um, uh, which is sort of defies, and it's one of the reasons it moves slowly. Uh, it defies, you know, um, sort of silver bullet approach to transformation, which is a good thing. I think it's one of our great strengths. A perfect set of words with which to end our conversation. Dr. Dan Greenstein, thank you so much for joining us from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. On behalf of Dan and Howard Teibel, I'm Pete Wright. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll catch you next time right here on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel Education.